First Peter uh, chapter 4 in order to keep our text in context on this third crown that we're dealing with tonight. It's only proper that we start in First Peter 4 and verse 12 and then come on down and keep the whole thing together as we come down to this crown of uh, this crown that's waiting a crown that's waiting for those who earn it and, and we'll be reading about that in a, in a moment or two the crown of glory that fadeth not away that's our subject tonight when we get, get to it but we must keep the scripture always in its context because if we don't are in problems. So in First Peter four, and and we're at verse twelve, reading down to chapter five, and verse four. Uh, later on, as we go along, now I want you to understand this: that Peter is writing to hundreds of young believers who are persecuted fiercely with manifold temptations and scattered across the whole of the, or a good part of the Roman Empire. Their persecutions, the like of, was never seen before. This, and I doubt, has ever been seen, seen since. The rejection and the reproach and the ridicule of these dear young believers was desperate. They were under the wicked reign of the Emperor Nero. And this is just the beginning of the affliction that came from this evil man. There was an unleashing of barbarity that was unprecedented. And when you put the whole thing into context, it's not for the faint-hearted to be a believer in these days. And it shouldn't be in these days either. You put the whole thing into its context here. Some years before this, Stephen was stoned to death. James the Apostle was beheaded. Most think that the Apostle Paul at this time had been martyred. And we know that in a short time after Peter wrote this, that he was crucified upside down. So these days were not for the, I say again, for the faint-hearted. Therefore, they were for, for the stalwarts who stood against all the powers of darkness and wouldn't recant to the powers of Rome. And there's coming a day, and it's not far away, when the persecution, as it is increasing across the world, will come to our land if the Lord doesn't tarry. And you must remember that. And there will be a sorting out of the nominal Christians and the stalwarts that stand for faith and for truth. I want you to look at verse 12. And that first word comes from Peter is the word beloved. So you see there the heart of Peter. You know, Peter was uncouth and he was, he was impetuous at times and we all know his story. He was erratic and 
But he had, a, he, had, he had a loving heart. And sometimes you get those, you know, who are tigers on the, on the pulpit, but you know, they have hearts that are soft and tender. Peter had a soft and a tender heart, and he's addressing these people in what they need to hear, that they're loved. And a person going through trial and situations and troubles in life need to know that they're, that they're loved. And it's the job of one another to try and love and care for them. The word beloved here is the word agape love. It's an intensely divine love. It's the same word used for, uh, in, in regarding to the church. He loved the church, the Jesus Christ, and gave himself for the church. It's the same word used in John 3 and 16. You see, Peter had failed on many occasions, as we all do. And uh, when he failed in, in Luke 22 uh, and denied the Lord in oaths and curses, Jesus said to him, he says, uh, these words, when thou art converted, in other words, when you're turned back, when you've got settled down and, and you're turned back into the way again and you're forgiven, and he was forgiven, he says, you'll strengthen, you'll strengthen and comfort and encourage the brethren. And it was that trial, those trials that, brought the love out in Peter because he saw others as he saw himself. And so he, he had a shepherd's heart and the word here he says, beloved. Now you not only see the heart of Peter here and you see the honesty of Peter in verse 12 because he says, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is, the worst of it has to come, which is to try you as though stra some strange thing happened to you. Now, we could borrow the words from Paul here where he said, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And here we have the honesty. You see, there was one thing. There's one thing, and it's a thing that's missing today. There's one thing about the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ himself and the early evangelical church fathers that preached the gospel, they didn't portray or paint a rosy picture in order to get converts. This is not something a young Christian would want to hear nowadays. You see, we're more interested in numbers and heads and hands than in the hearts of people. And so Peter's been honest. And the Lord Jesus Christ, when you listen and watch and read what he says, when he's talking about converts and people coming to Christ, there's a cost to it. There's a cost to it. And it's not an easy path. And it's not an easy road. And, and he's telling these people here, now you're going to be in trials and you're going to be in strange, fierce trials. Fiery trials are going to come. We need to set the record straight. It's not a matter of somebody putting up their hand in the meeting or standing up in the meeting. We need to set the record straight as far as the cross is concerned. Taking up the cross is no small business. And you see, so many have this Gospel has been perpetrated today, this social gospel, and they're putting up hands and they're nodding their head. But when they go out into the, into the, into the cold face, 
That's why they don't last. The truth has to be told that this is not an easy journey. The truth has to be told that if you're going to come to the Lord and get saved, you can expect. You can expect trials and you'll expect troubles. Look at verse what he says in verse 13. But rejoice. Don't in verse 12, think it not strange if some strange thing happens. Don't think it strange if you're, if you're in a trial. Think it not strange if you're not. And if you're not going through trials or situations of some kind in your life for your Christian walk, then you would be thinking the strange. So you should. But in verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye shall be glad also with exceeding joy. You see what he says there? Partakers of the sufferings of Christ. We shouldn't be expected to go any less than Christ went if we're taken up his cross to follow him. You know, Paul talks about that word partaker three times in, in this context that we're dealing with. He talks about the partakers of the cross, partakers of the divine nature, and partakers of the glory of God. Being part of it, having it in you. And that's what it is to be a, be a Christian. He says in verse 13, Rejoice, exceeding joy, and be glad, and be happy that you're suffering persecution for Christ's sake. And he's talking about the worst kinds of persecution here. He's talking about the fiery, the fiery trials. Oh, I tell you, the fiery trial, which is to try you. Don't you think it's strange? Now, I tell you, there's trials and there are fiery trials. And I'm sure that we have encountered both uh, little trials and not so great a trial, but we have big trials too. That's in Ephesians 6, where we need the armor on. And whenever Paul talked about Ephesians 6, when he come to the fourth part of the armor, he says, above all, above all, I was... Uh, visiting a man that was dying with cancer about two years ago in a nursing home, a young man. And I used to visit him once a week and I could see him going down and down and down. And I used to pray with him every day. And just the last time or two before he died, I was in with him. And uh, I, I quoted this verse here, and, and I didn't quote it right. When you quote scriptures, you need to quote, quote it right. And he was sitting... He, he was there and he was there and no more, but he could hear me. And I said, above all, I said, t t went down the armor. I just played down the armor, the breastplate and the girdle of truth, and I went right down to here and, and the shield of faith. And he stopped me, caught my hand. Oh, he says, say that right. Above all, he says, above all. Man, I could, I could see his wee hand going up. Above all, taking the shield of faith against the fiery darts of the wicked one. And we need to stand in faith and hold the, uh, this armor up uh, when the devil comes with these fiery, uh, these fiery attacks against you. So let's read on as we come down the verses. If you reproach, verse 14, for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rested upon you. On their part, that's the world's part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. In other words, the world 
curses him. The word, actually, the word there is blaspheme. The, wor- the world blasphemes him, blasphemes him, but on your part, for you, he is glorified. He's glorified when we stand for him. He's glorified when we don't bow to them and their scornings and their, uh, and, and their blasphemings. As for you, he says, I'll be glorified through what you do. Glorifying Jesus Christ in the trials. And you know, that's why trials come our way. That's one of the reasons that the trials come and there are fiery trials at times and we, we think it's strange and we can't understand why they come to us and why they don't come to somebody else and they come and they come and they they, 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 they really can put us back, but it's, it's, it's for the glorifying of Jesus Christ. He's glorified when he sees us entering in and partaking of the sufferings of Christ because that's, that's the reason why it is. There's a wee verse in Job that says, Where is God, the maker, that give us songs in the night? He give us songs in the night. He's saying here, rejoice and sing and be glad. Don't care what the world says about it. Rejoice and be glad and praise the Lord. We're going to see because we're going to the glory very soon. And we, we, do you know we would be far better putting up with a wee bit of trials down here, a wee bit of affliction down here, a wee bit of pain down here than pen and eternity in hell? It was only for a short time. And no matter what comes our way, no matter how hard it is to take, it's only, for a, it's only for a season and a very short season. It's only a moment, Paul says. Just a moment. And it'll be over to the glory. Boy, if we weren't saved tonight, there's an eternity in the fiery flames of hell. So we should be glad to suffer for the Lord. We're supposed to be glad to stand for the Lord. And when the trial comes and the persecution comes, the way it'll come, We'll see then who, who, who stands. And uh, we can get down and we can get depressed and we can get tired and we can get weary. And it's very hard to get going again sometimes, but we need to rise up and realize that nothing has comes upon us that he doesn't allow, no matter what it is. It has to go past him first. And when it comes past him, it's for our good and it's for our trial. And it's for our, our, our blessings uh, and for the strengthening and the equipping and the blessing us and, and conforming us into his image and eventually into his glory where we shall go and be with him. Now look at verse, verse uh, 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evil body, or doer, as a busybody. I'm not expounding that, for we're not dealing with that tonight. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. This is what we're saying. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now here's the verse we're after as we go on in. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God 
commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now let's rest at that verse a wee minute. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. It's the will of God that Christians should suffer. The will of God. And don't make any mistake about that. That whatever your trial is, whatever your situation is, whatever your pain is, whatever your anguish is tonight, as a believer, the Lord has allowed it. He has allowed it. The will of God. It's the will of God. There's three wills of God. It's the will of God that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I doubt if there's anybody here tonight and you're not saved, but if you are, it's the will of God that you would be saved and come to the knowledge. The knowledge of what? The knowledge of the truth. That Christ died for you and rose again for you. And the knowledge of the truth that if you repent and be converted, you'll be saved for all eternity. That's the knowledge, knowing the truth. It's the will of God that all men, all men, none of your hyper-Calvinists or nothing, all men, it's the will of God, all men would be saved. The whosoever will may come. That's the gospel we preach that seems to be working. All men. It's the will of God that all men would be saved. It tells us in Thessalonians, Paul tells us, it's the will of God that every man, every believer should be sanctified, set apart for God. And the moment that you're saved, you're set apart, you're sanctified. Don't get scared of that word sanctified. You're set apart for God. But you're set apart for a purpose. You're set apart with a gift for the service of God. And when you get saved and you need to find out what your gift is, and I'm pounding that all the time because God has given us gifts for the running of the church and for the equipment of the church and for the bringing in the blessing and bringing in the revival and because so many Christians are not utilizing their gift. There's a hold-up in heaven because he has saved us and put us on this earth and saved us and given us a gift on this earth to fulfill the ministry that you've received of him. And that ministry, your part and your corner depends on you. And when you have a whole lot of Christians and they're not utilizing their gift, the whole thing's dormant in the church assembly. So it's the will of God that all men would be saved. It's the will of God that all men would be sanctified. And it's, or Christians would be sanctified. And it's the will of God that all men would, all Christians would suffer. That's the will of God. So if you're not in some pain or some trouble or some trial in your home or in your family as a believer, then you're out of the will of God. For Spurgeon says to come like a flock of birds. One comes after the other. And so he's getting these over to these Christians. He's showing them and he's teaching them. Boy, this is good food for them. They can't be singing choruses to these boys all day. They need something solid. They need something when they go out to face. The knock could come to the door in the morning and they'd be beheaded. And so, he has a plan and purpose. And Peter's explaining that that, that plan because nobody with more, more experience than him could do it. He has been tried and he has been suffered and he has been tested himself. And because of that, he knows how to handle these people and what these people want. 
Because in verse 19 it says he started it up, he said, wherefore, wherefore? Let them suffer. Wherefore, he says, he, he, he going from what happened before. So I want you to watch this verse again. Wherefore, verse 19, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him. Do you see that word commit? That's, a, that's an army word. It's, it's the garrison. So what he's saying here is, Commit yourself unto him, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and he will protect you. That's the word that it is, protection. Now you get that into your mind now tonight. That the mighty shepherd, the chief shepherd that we're going to shepherd, we're going to look at them in a moment, he's a protector. And the devil can only go so far. He'll keep you. Don't worry, he'll keep you in the trial. That's what that says here. Don't you, don't, don't you worry. And I know that there's people in affliction that I've never been in. But he has promised he'll never fail. You'll see that in a minute. This is that we text to here. He's the great protector and he'll protect you. And he'll only allow the enemy to, to do what, what, what he wants to do for your good. And he'll not let it go overboard now. He'll not test us more than we're able to bear. Boy, I have seen that, you know, over the years, dealing with sick people and dying people and families and all that. I've seen it so worked out. I've seen, I see the word of God worked out so lovingly at times and, and these words coming into practice. Uh, he never tests more than he, he can. He brings you to a certain point. And he knows when to take the pressure off. He knows when to take it off. And he knows when he's finished. And sometimes the, the trial goes on for long enough. Sometimes it might go on certain trials for years. But he'll never put his hand heavy upon you. Remember David cried out, the hand of the Lord is heavy upon me. I tell you, it's one thing to have the hand of God upon you, but to have the hand of God heavy upon you. But he was able to bear it. And what you'd be able to bear, I mightn't be able to bear. And he'll throw a trial across your path and you might not understand it and you'll think it's strange and you might never get the answer for it down here. But that's beside the point. It's in the will of God. And the will of God is, says here. He says in this, look at this text again. Wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Now you see his protection and you see his presence here because he's faithful. He's a lover that never jilts. And in the fiery trial that these people are going through, that's what he's saying to them. He's saying he's faithful. He's faithful. And I don't know about you, but I have proved him faithful in storms and trials of life. I have found him as the one who never leaves or forsakes. And I cannot only sing about that, my friend, and preach about it, but I have known it. 
that he's the protector, he protects us. Boy, where would we be if the protecting hand wasn't upon us? Where would we be on the roads? Where would we be in health? Where would we be anywhere? If the protecting hand of God, he's faithful. He's faithful in protection. Faithful is he that calleth thee. He says, I will do it. Faithful is he that promised. And his mercies are new every morning. And great is his faithfulness. Boy, he's been faithful to you and me today. That's his job. That's what Peter's saying he is. He says, whatever your afflictions may be, whatever your troubles may be, he'll protect you. And he'll be present with you. But he goes on another wee step and he says, the faithful creator. That's the power. That's the power. Oh, I tell you, he's the great protector. He's the great preserver. The great presence is with us every day, wherever we turn. And the great power. Power of creation. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in my heart tonight. Boy, if only we believed that. There's only one Holy Spirit, you know. Not one for the free churches and one for the Baptists and one for the... There's only one Holy Ghost. And the Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead is the same Spirit that worketh in me. The Holy Ghost that spoke and the cosmos and the whole thing come into being and breathed and the whole thing. That Holy Ghost is in me. And you... But where's the power? Where's the power? Oh, we could spend so much time at this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now you'll get at what I'm saying in a minute. The elders which are among you, I exhort who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory. That's the partaker of the suffering and the partaker of the glory here that shall be revealed. Speaking to the elders, he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Neither is being the Lord's, being Lord's over God's heritage, but being examples or examples to the flock. And when, now watch this, the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. That's the crown of glory for the elders and the leaders and the overseers of the flock, but it means a whole lot more than that and far more than we would have time to take tonight. just want you to dwell a wee moment on this word, uh, the elders, which are among you. We've read he's the chief shepherd, and the elders uh, that rule over and reign over the flock are the under-shepherds. And we need never to forget that, that he is the chief shepherd and he is the one that we work underneath. 
You see, the word elder is an Old Testament concept. Uh, it's brought over into the New Testament. starts away back in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4, talking about the elders of Israel. But as a New Testament, it's a New Testament uh, concept as well. Because we know when we read about the establishment of the local churches that Paul and Barnabas established elders, appointed them uh, in different assemblies all over the place. And there's always an S where you get the elders. Was for a period of time here, I was the only elder, and that wasn't scriptural, but there was nothing we could do about it. But you'll always get the elders with an S on it, the elders... In every New Testament church was established, there was elders ordained, not by men, but by God. And they were put in as overseers of the flock. Now, the word elders doesn't mean age so much. It means wisdom, maturity, and spirituality. Seventeen times you get the words shepherd or under shepherds which are the under-shepherds uh, when you tra travel through the epistles and through the work of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say this very carefully so that we know when we come to this crown who's going to earn it. It means pastor as well. There's, there's one of these words, and I know the most time it means overseer, but the overseer means a pastor as well. Some people have problems with that. I don't have problems with it. Don't a problem. I don't care whether people call me a pastor or whether they call me a pastor or not. But the word, the, the, the Greek word for overseer can be translated here and is the word pastor. And so don't be getting uptight about the fact that uh, somebody's called a pastor. It doesn't worry me one bit, but it does worry me when somebody, if somebody would call me the reverend. Because I read in the word of God that the reverend, his name is reverence and his name only. Now, I know that some of you will take me to task on that, but that's all right. But don't bother calling to me for you could get a, might get a very nice answer. Peter was Peter. John was John. Paul was Paul. And Bertie will do me. I heard an elder, an overseer one time saying, he said this, I've never been to college, but I have the blessed knowledge that my sins are all forgiven and I'm on my way to heaven. Well, that's good theology. The word Greek, the word in the Greek for elder is overseer, it's bishop, and the base word of it is presbyteros, where do we get the name Presbyterian from? And the Greek, the Greek word for overseer as well is escapalia, where we get this episcopalic church from. So they're both names in churches. But the Bible doesn't say they're names of churches. And I think it's very important that we bring this out. The Bible doesn't say that is the name of the Presbyterian or this Pacpalian church or any other church. It's a, name of, it's, a, it's a person. 
not a people. It's a person. And I don't like people saying we don't have elders in the church, we have leaders. Well, a leader should be an elder, but the Bible, the Bible says overseers, elders, bishops, or whatever you like to call them, that all comes from the same word. And these are the ones, these are the elders, these are the overseers, these are the people that are in charge that God has put in the congregation, the under-shepherds, with the over-shepherd, with the chief shepherd above them, ruling over and working through the assembly of God's people that they're responsible for, and there's many things that they have to do and give an account for it they will do. And whether the crown comes or not, it's up to God. But there's a crown, there's a crown waiting for overseers and for elders and for pastors and for those who are put in charge and gifted in charge to put in charge of an assembly of God's people. Acts 20, listen to what it says, you needn't turn to it. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. And if you notice and look at verse 5, chapter 5 and verse 1, the elders which are among you, I exhort you, I am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partake of that glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you. The flock of God. They're God's flock. They're not Baptists, they're not brethren, they're not lifeboat. The people, the called out people in this assembly that are ecclesia, the called out ones out of darkness into light, born again by the Spirit of God that uh, we're glad to have here and come here and call this the church and meet and break bread and do all of that. My friend, that's, that's, that's it. That's the people. That's the people he's talking about. He purchased them with his own blood. You're purchased with the blood of Christ. On Calvary's cross. That's the main point. That's the point we need to hit. Redeemed, called out, purchased by the blood of Jesus into his own church and into his own gathering of people. Now listen to what I'm going to say. Everything that the chief shepherd is the elders in an assembly are supposed to be. Everything that I read out there in that last verse in that uh, chapter 4 is what the elders and the overseers and the pastors should be. They should be protectors of the flock. And it's our job to protect the flock. And they should be present in the flock. And they should be providing for the flock. Look at verse 2. Feed the flock of God which is among you. The elders are supposed to be among the flock. And the flock are supposed to be among them. Now you hold on to what I'm saying. There's no use in having elders and overseers in the church if they don't come or they only come sometimes. But thank God we haven't that problem. But there used to be a problem with that here. 
And they're away on the side and they're way off and they're supposed to be elders. They're supposed to be among the flock. How can you know what the sheep's looking at and the lambs are looking at unless you're among them? Cheer stands the sense. He needs to be among them. He needs to be able to see that lamb as a lame foot or that thing's not right there and there's something wrong with that. He needs to be among them. He needs to see them. And I try to say to myself and I try to, we, we elders try to do this. We try to be among the people and see if there's somebody missing, what's wrong? That's our job. We're supposed to find out what's wrong with them. Can we help you? Is there anything that we can do? And we need, we're not very good at that. I don't think that we're very good at that here, pastoring and counselling and helping and visiting. But it's all part of the work of the overseers of the flock. He says, feed the flock of God. Before I touch that, let me say this. You can't know what's going on in the hearts and lives of the flock unless you are among them. The elder's job is to feed, to lead, and to protect. Now, not all the elders have the same gift. Not all the elders are supposed to feed the flock. The way I'm doing it tonight, or trying to do. Or lead the flock, or protect the flock. The, the, there's gifts and those gifts should be seen and those gifts should be utilized and those gifts should be used because there's a crown of glory now Roy will not have to give an account for me nor will I for Roy or Stephen or Adrian I'll have to give an account for my own gift and so there's a trilogy of different gifts there that we need to put into action in order that the assembly, in order that the flock of sheep will thrive. But the first and most important thing for the flock of sheep is food. That stands to sense. I have a cocker spaniel up there. Cocker, I don't know what she is, something. Um, do you know at five o'clock every day, no matter where I am, that dog comes looking for me to be fed? I've only, I've only realized this of late. If I'm down here, he'll sit, he'll sit on the lane. If I go around the front of the house, he'll follow me around. He'll come to the door and he'll stand looking in at five o'clock. And he'll run for where the food is as soon as I come out. I don't have to say to you. Do you know why that is? Because he's hungry. He's hungry. And he knows the hand that feeds. He knows the hand that The most important thing, if I don't feed him, he'll die. You see, the reason this place is not full tonight of people and this room full and the whole place full tonight, there's no hunger. 
You know why there's no hunger? Because something else has taken up the appetite. I never knew, and my father had a milk run and went up lanes and fields and everywhere to lift milk. And I never knew another farmer in, in that part of a man that had a, had a pear tree, only one. And he was a neighbor. And I used to go to his house often, but I had to go, I went over the fields, but you'd have to go too long way going down the road. So I just crossed the fields over to him. I went for the pear tree. And as soon as the pears would start coming out, a couple of us would juke about. But we went too early one day. <laughs> and I got a pear, and when it was coming about over the hip boy, peeing stuff. I remember as well coming in. My mother says, your dinner's in. I says, I don't want any dinner today. You were at Ernie Morris pears. And man, she was right. See, I'd filled myself with something else. And if you're filling yourself with something else, you'll have no appetite. If men are busy making money and doing all the things that we have to do to keep going, but boy, if we don't work that out, we lose appetite. And the first thing that a sheep or anybody else or anybody else needs to do is to fed. And, and Peter says that, he says, he says that feed the flock of God which is among you. Again, it's easy to feed them if you're among them. It's easy to feed them. Boy, if, if you're hungry, you know, it's great to see something hungry and you have food for it. I take a delight in that dog running away in front of me into the garage that I get a handful of meat. But if he was lying sick and not able to get up, I wouldn't find any joy in that. So the, the, the shepherd has to, he has, he has to be among them to do that. Has, they have to be there. Thank God you're here tonight. And he says, Peter says here, feed the flock of God. They're God's flock. Don't fool them. Don't fleece them. Don't flood them. Feed them. Boy, there's some lessons we could learn from this. And I could learn from it too. Don't fleece them. You see, there's hirelings out there. They're not true shepherds at all. They're only after the sheep for the wool. They're only after them to see what they can get off them, fleece them, and then let them out with no wool on them to starve and the predators to get them. And that's what's happening over our land. If you don't feed a sheep and fleece a sheep and let a sheep out, I'll tell you, it'll not last long. And there's so men, I tell you, there'll be no crowns for them. There'll be good damnation for them.
You're only going to feed the flock if you're in the Word yourself, and you're only going to feed the flock if you're bringing them the true, real Word of God. They'll know it. They'll know what the real food is. They'll know it. They'll know whether they're Ernie Morris pears or my mother's good dinner or not. They'll know it. And they'll comfort. Boy, I remember when I lived in Langs Crescent there off the road, off the Newry Road there. Lived in there for a number of 11 years. And a wee hut out the back where I used to study and pray. And I was in one morning about 11 o'clock and Pat and I were sitting drinking coffee and she says, when you're going out there to the study, she says, take that handful of bread out to the birds. It was a snow. It was about six inches. And I said, there'd be no use in bringing bread out. She, she'll tell you that. I said, there's no use in bringing bread out and dr- letting it fall into the snow, but they'll never say it. You bring it out. So I brought it out and I scattered a whole handful of bread up the snow and I went into the wee study and looked out to the window. I wasn't at the window until one board came and two board came and a flock of them came. They were hungry and they came for the food. So that's what he's saying here. He says, feed the flock which is among you. Now watch this, verse 2 again. Not by constraint. That is to be forced to do it. But to do it willingly and freely and enjoy doing it. Not by constraint. I didn't have to constrain any of these elders, when we, me and Roy prayed, or we prayed for elders in this church, we put men before the Lord and we prayed, and they prayed for they didn't. I thought they were never going to come back to me, but they did. They come back to us. And my friend, they're not doing it because they have to do it. They're not traveling miles every week. They don't do it because they have to do it. They're not standing and doing and taking on some things that we have to take on. It's not very nice. They're not doing it. They're doing it out of their heart. They're doing it for God. God's flock, not mine. Not doing it for me. I tell them that. No, no, not by constraint. I heard somebody saying one day, I says, I'll, I'll do. Uh, Brother Dale, not mind me saying this tonight. I remember the day that we asked Dale would he would he consider being an elder in this house years ago over in the bar. He says, I'll pray about it. I'll never forget the words he said to me after about a week or two, one Sunday morning going in, he says, I prayed about that. He says, I can't do anything else. How could I do anything else was the words he said. It's not a matter of doing it because you have to do it. It's not a matter of doing it just to fill in a place. No, no, if you do it for that purpose, you'd be far better away from it. Not by constraint. Look at it again. Not by covetousness. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre. That word is shameful lucre. We're not doing this for money. I'm not doing this for money. I left a good job. 
I'm doing it because I love the Lord and I'm doing it because I want to do it and I love doing it. And mind you, it's not easy. You wouldn't want to know how many hours I put into this message tonight. Start some morning at half past one. Do you remember Peter himself? Do you remember when God had called him and in after the resurrection and showed himself unto Peter and he said, go up to Galilee and I'll meet you up in Galilee. And when he went up, when he got as far as Galilee, where was Peter and seven others? They were fishing back at the fishing. And you remember in the morning he stood on the shore and he got a breakfast ready for them. Oh, the grace of God. I'd let them stay out there. Peter was away fishing. Didn't have either been away fishing all week. What would you expect me to come up here and bring to you tonight? If I was away on boards of governors and playing golf and committees, what would you, how would you, I bring you any word? Regurgitate some old thing. Microwave some old thing. There's no feeding in that. And you remember whenever he got the breakfast into Peter, what did they say to him? ha. <laughs> Keith has got her there. What did they say? <laughs> she's feed my lambs and feed my sheep. That is your job, Peter. Not fishing. Not running the country. And if we're going to feed the flock, we're going to have to get the food and it has to be ground out, you know, in study and in prayer. Not by constraint and not by covetousness. And lastly, not by control. Verse 3, neither is being lords over God's heritage. Controlling. We're not here to control. We're here to guard and we're here to protect and we're here to help and we're here to love you and we're here to care for you and to preach the word to you and keep you on the path. And we all have our different gifts doing that. And if you'd have been at the members meeting last night, you'd have seen the treasure, you'd have seen the secretary's work, you'd have saw the different works that went on here and how it takes us all working together to do it. No, it's not by constraint. You don't have to do this, be forced to do this or paid to do it. And it's not by control. And if we get all these things right, then what do we see in verse 4? When the chief shepherd shall appear. You know, he's the good shepherd, he's the great shepherd, and he's the chief shepherd. Three shepherds, we wouldn't have time to deal with it tonight. He's the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. He's the great shepherd that raised, rose again from the dead, and he's the chief shepherd. It's under him we work. It's up to him we look. It's him we love. We're doing it because it's his church. We're doing it because it's his people. We're doing it in light of his coming again. You know, I was thinking the, the other day, and I've finished that, I was thinking the other day, why should we have any incentives for rewards anyway? Why does the Lord give us an incentives for these five crowns when we get to glory? 
Sure, we shouldn't need any incentives to serve the Lord. When we think of how he has redeemed us and saved us and lifted us and blessed us and called us and all that he has done for us, sure it will be a joy to serve him if we got nothing at the end of it. Only heaven. <laughs> I was thinking that the other day. But oh, he's given these incentives, he's given these rewards, he's given these blessings, these five crowns. But I'm not doing it for the crown, let me tell you. I'm doing it because I love him. And I want to do it. You serve him because you love him tonight. And give thanks to what he has done in your life. And remember, this is all in the light of trials and persecutions and troubles. And these young Christians would have imbibed all this. And boy, what, what, a, what a way to keep these, these persecuted believers not long saved. What a way to keep them going on. He's going to appear someday. He's going to appear. That's what keeps us going. He's going to burst the cloud some of these days and he's going to come again. The chief shepherd, he's the boss. And he's going to take us out, take us up, and take us in, and take us home for our rewards. Let us pray. Hallelujah. Father, as we turn now to prayer in a moment, oh Lord, help us to praise and to thank you for your precious word tonight to our hearts, Lord. Thank you, Lord, to be part of a body of believers, a part of a, of a church that loves the Lord and preaches the word. Oh God, keep us faithful to the end, we pray, when the chief shepherd shall appear, and then the crown of glory. Oh, hallelujah. And then we just take the crown and give it back to you, Lord. We want to cast it at your feet. Say, I don't want that, Lord. That's yours. And oh, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, whatever the trial and the troubles and the temptations that are going on tonight in this house, Lord, let us cast all our care upon thee. For he goes on in that great portion of Scripture to tell them to cast all our care on him. And so, Lord, we do that tonight. And we ask, Lord, now that you'll bless those that go and those that stay for prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.